This is the Business Storytelling Podcast with Christoph Trapp, available on Google, Spotify, Apple, Pandora, and other podcast channels. Want to play it on your iPhone? Just ask Siri to play the Christoph Trapp Business Storytelling Podcast, also available on Alexa. Here's Christoph with today's episode. Business Storytellers, it's Christoph Trapp, your host and author of Content Performance Culture. Thanks for listening. Episode 245 on deck here. We want to talk about marketing, fundraising, and how do you drive results? Of course, that's a slightly different uh, angle than what we normally talk about is selling stuff. But fundraising is about selling things too. And the quick story I want to share with you is I play football. Uh, for about 10 years, including at the University of Iowa. And one of my teammates actually committed suicide uh, many years later, uh, but he had the concussion um, trauma syndrome. I don't remember the exact acronym right now. And finally, his mom told the story through the concussion clinic, and the story was just unbelievable. And and I, it prompted me to donate. Of course, uh, I knew him, so I had a connection. But even just the way it was shared, um, the, the heartbreaking details um, certainly pushed me forward to to make that $60 donation or however much it was. So today's guest to help us understand how fundraising and digital marketing work together, Sarah Willey. She is the Associate Director of Annual Giving at the University of Missouri in St. Louis, about four hours south of where I'm located currently. Um, Sarah, thanks for joining us today. I'm excited to be here. And we connected on LinkedIn or Twitter or somewhere. You said something smart about fundraising and digital marketing. And those are always my favorite guests to come on the show. Yeah, I think it's amazing how social media can build such wonderful connections. So that's great. Absolutely. So tell us about fundraising in the digital world. I mean, you certainly just heard the the story I shared and and I, about 10 years ago, I worked in United, with United Way here in um, Cedar Rapids, um, and certainly things are changing. What are you seeing out there when it comes to digital marketing and fundraising? How do you, uh, what are the best practices? How do people get started? How, how, how do nonprofits make it work, especially today, where all of us are at home? Don't ask me to come to an event. I haven't left my house in uh, months. My car gets uh, three weeks to the gallon. <laughs> that sounds about like my life right now as well. Um, so I think when I first got into the field, I was pursuing a master's degree in nonprofit management and had a course on fundraising, which is how I learned that that's actually like a profession, a job that people have. <laughs> and the first thing that surprised me in that class was that it, the teacher told us that events, you know, your galas, trivia nights are a popular thing in my city, but those those in-person events to raise money are, they have the lowest return on investment of any form of fundraising. And when I first took that class, that really surprised me because I really thought that events kind of were fundraising. That's what came to mind for me. And I think that that's the case for a lot of people who don't work in the field. When you think fundraising, you think a bunch of people getting together. At some point, there's kind of a raise the paddle kind of moment where there's some fundraising that happens. And we forget or don't kind of recognize all of the other things that are fundraising. And so there's direct mail, which is a primary portion of my current role. There's, you know, actually sitting down for a one-on-one ask with someone. There's 
writing grants to foundations. There's all of these different pieces that can comprise an entire fundraising program for a nonprofit organization. And the events are just the visible part. And they're really wonderful if they allow you to build relationships and build on that in those other forms of fundraising. But in and of themselves, they tend not to have the best return on the investment that it takes to put that event together. I'm currently accepting requests for future virtual and on-site keynotes and workshops. In 2020 alone, I've spoken in Singapore and Istanbul, virtually of course, thanks COVID. I can't wait to get back on the road. And if we still can't get on the road in 2021, I would be happy to speak at your event virtually. Please reach out to me, ctrap at gmail.com or authenticstorytelling.net. So I think that if there's a silver lining for this industry in the pandemic, it's that hopefully a lot of nonprofits are going to look at how they can utilize those other forms of fundraising better and not be too reliant on events. Because of course, in the middle of a pandemic, you can't have events like you normally would have. And so you either have to focus on your other streams or start to build those other streams if you've previously been very reliant on events as your, your main form of fundraising. And so I think fundraising is primarily about building relationships and it's primarily about telling stories. And so what I love about social media and the digital world is that that's really what social media is also for. Social media marketing is all about building relationships with your customers or in the case of fundraising, your donors. And it's about telling the stories that are going to resonate and having, building those connections. And so for me, fundraising, this digital space allows us to reach more people in different ways and continue to do what we should be doing really well anyway, which is tell the stories of the people who will benefit from whatever the causes that we're raising money for and uh, building relationships with people who are passionate about whatever that cause is, whether it's um, you know preventing suicide or whether it's saving park space and green space or whether it's fighting climate change or educating uh, the next generation. There's just so many great causes and all of them have stories behind them and social media and email, digital forms of communication are a great way to have those conversations. And of course, when I was in United Way, Sarah, I always loved telling the stories of the people that were affected by the donations, uh, you know, who had a jump start on their uh, life again, or, or, or were able to, you know, have enough food on the table or whatever the story might be. Um, and I always liked when real people talk to me, I'm not a big fan of the whole you know, let's just uh, have an anonymized quote or whatever. Uh, what has your experience been? Uh, do, do people usually want to share their story or have you seen, or, or what's your philosophy on that statement? Sure, that's a great question. And I think that feeds into one of the big themes and conversations happening within our sector right now. I do think that in the case of a lot of organizations, there are beneficiaries who love to share their story and that's been my experience working in a university. We have a lot of students who really do want to share why they chose this particular institution for their educational goals and what difference it's made for them to receive scholarship funding to allow them to pursue whatever dream they're pursuing. And there are some brilliant stories that we hear from some of these students about what they plan to do with the education that they're receiving as they go out into the world and why it was important for them to have the opportunity to come here and 
in our case, you know, scholarships are a big part of what we're raising money for. And it's a big part of why many of our students get to live their dreams. But I do also think that there are times that a beneficiary story might be very personal and that it's very important for those of us in a position to tell those stories, to make sure that we're doing it in a way that's respectful and uplifting of the person whose story we're telling. And I think that historically in our sector, there have been times that there's a a level of exploitation that happens in how we collect and disseminate the stories that we have to tell. And there are confidentiality issues that you have to think about in some settings. For example, if you're raising money for a medical organization, you have to think about, for example, HIPAA laws in the United States. And so I think that there are some challenges that have to be thought through very carefully, but I do think that there's a way to tell stories in a very respectful way. And there's a way to um, share those in a way that, that makes the beneficiary feel really good about their story being out there, as well as helps donors feel connected to the cause that they love. I think there's also ways to get creative about telling a story in a personal way if you don't have access to a beneficiary. And a favorite example of mine, I worked for a nonprofit public interest law firm that was focused on environmental issues. So it was a bunch of environmental lawyers and cases tended to be these big things that had to do with not so much one person, but, you know, maybe saving a certain place or passing some new law or protecting some law. And so it often wasn't the case that we could point to one person and say, this is who we're helping in the way that you can if you're, for example, where I'm at now and raising money for scholarships and can point to a particular student. And my favorite appeal that I did for this um, nonprofit law firm was about Fred the Turtle. So at the time they were working on uh, passing a new law in the state that would allow, that would um, not allow commercial turtle trapping. And so it would protect our turtle populations. And I thought really the best person to tell that story is one of these turtles. And so I created the persona of a turtle named Fred and got a picture of a species of turtle that was going to be protected by this ban if we were able to pass it. And I had Fred tell the story of why it was important to him to have this ban passed and what it would mean for his turtle family. And our donors really loved it and really responded well to it. I had people write letters back to Fred. uh, And so I pretended I was Fred again and wrote letters back to them. And it was just a really fun thing to do. And so I think there's a lot of ways to get creative if there are concerns about your real life donor in a way that's fun uh, for the donors involved and really helps get that story out there. Do you need help with digital marketing for your small to medium sized business? Reach out now and drop us a message at ctrap at gmail.com. Yep, and they, I mean that's a whole other. Thing. Were the were the turtles that was they were like cartoon characters or how would they? So I actually that, I took a, a real photo. Um, so it was an actual photograph that someone had taken mm-hmm. of the species of turtle, and so I just named him Fred and sent it out with with that photograph on it. Yeah, very cool. Of course, we did have a show before uh, about cartoons mm-hmm. and content marketing or marketing in general. Um, that's something to think about as well. When I was at United Way, we actually created Flat Ron. Ron Olson was the campaign chair, and we created uh, the designer created a Flat Ron version uh, that we posted, put everywhere, all over town. And people had smaller versions they took with them when they did something and took pictures. You know, like the, mm-hmm. the Flat Stanley uh, concept, basically. Um, 
So the, the other thing you mentioned there, Sarah, was uh, donors. So, of course, sometimes uh, it can be a, a slippery slope when we tell stories about people who get services, right? We don't want to exploit them, but we also want to tell their stories. So how do you how do you do that? But you also mentioned the donors, and that's actually a thing I forgot about. Um, there is a reason why donors give money, you know, like, for example, when I give money to the University of Iowa for their football program, I mean, there is a reason why I do that when I do that. And um, certainly um, my story might get people to donate if I share that in a meaningful way. Yes, that's very true. And I think, you know, giving is, is a joyful thing, right? Like for most people, giving is something that makes them feel really good. And there's even been studies shown that, um, you know, that act of giving can, you know, boost endorphins and dopamine. And it's just this wonderful thing. And so, you know, telling a really good story helps somebody have those emotions about what they're about to do and giving that gift. Yeah, absolutely. So have you seen with COVID, I know there was the uh, Tom Fishburne did the cartoon where people are sitting in a conference room. Sometimes I'm uh, doing this from memory here and they're talking about digital transformation and how they have time and the wrecking ball comes in uh, COVID-19, you know, you have to now do digital, digital things, digital marketing. If you don't have a website, better get one up quickly. Um, did you see a lot of people in fundraising that were not ready for the digital um, uh, digital uh, era coming so quickly? I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people who still don't feel ready for it, even though we're living it. Um, it's it's a different <laughs> skill set in some ways, uh, depending on the people who are you know currently working in a fundraising office and what they're what their talents are. Uh, social media can be really overwhelming for somebody who's not trained in that. There's multiple platforms and there's so much going on. And uh, how do you get yourself seen through the noise and how do you find the right people? And so I do think that there are some nonprofits that are really struggling right now because they don't feel like that's, you know, sort of the genius of the folks who work there. They're good at other things and shine in other, uh, in other ways. And so it's uh, it is a challenge. It's a challenge to make time for that on top of everything else. Nonprofits, especially medium to small size nonprofits, tend to be pretty understaffed, and everybody's already stretched a little thin. Yeah, but it's it's a different level of building relationships, right? Because it is to an extent one to many, even when you start talking to people directly. Um, you know, but, but it is different than, than stopping by somebody's office and making a bigger ask. Uh, how do you, what are the stories that you would recommend that people share online to get people to pay attention? I mean, I still remember when I, uh, when I donated to the Concussion Foundation, but that was a personal connection, right? Would I have felt the exact same way? Um, and I, I'm pretty sure I was, it was very emotional. Would I have felt the same way if I didn't know him? Um, maybe not quite as strong, but it, it was still a touching story. How do you how do you how do you move people through to even pay attention to our nonprofit online or our uh, higher higher education? Well, I think that you know, to your point, the thing that works absolutely the best, and the thing that I think is not nearly as well tapped into as it could be for nonprofits, an area we all need to grow, is getting people to tell stories to their networks on our behalf. Um, certainly we can collect stories and we can disseminate those stories. And we do that with direct mail and we can do that through blogs and posts on social media ourselves, where we can say, you know, here's 
you know, John's story. And this is why he supports this organization. And we, as this nonprofit brand are sharing that, but what if we can get John to share that with his network? And what if there are 15 other people with similar stories that can share their own personal story with their network? And we call that peer to peer fundraising. And I think that that's something that nonprofits should really be leaning into if they're not already doing it. There are ways to set up platforms. There's multiple companies that have great platforms where you can help people set up their story on this website and share it out. So it's sort of like a GoFundMe kind of look, only it's hosted within a platform that's tied to that nonprofit organization. And you could have multiple people each creating their own page with their own story to share with their own network of friends and family, colleagues. And then um, Facebook fundraisers is another great opportunity that, um, you know, it's, it's super easy as a donor, as a, as a volunteer to an organization to set up a page. Facebook prompts you when your birthday comes around and says, you know, hey, do you want to pick a nonprofit and raise money for them? And so as nonprofits, I think we should be proactively reaching out to our audiences providing them a toolkit and some help so that they can raise money on our behalf successfully if that's what they want to do. And I think that's a great way to reach new people. It's, I always, I find the Facebook um, donation for a birthday quite overwhelming because there's like always a mix of, I don't know, a hundred people a day that have yes. a birthday, <laughs> you know, um, how, how do you, um, and, you know, I think the more volume there is, the more you kind of tune it out, right? So if I get a request every day to give to something, I'm probably not going to give to anything, right? Because it's just like, how do I even decide? Um, but how do you uh, how do you pick what's worthwhile, right? So we want people to, to do that, of course, set it up. I remember uh, Amazon Smile used to be a it thing. Still I think it still might be a thing. Um, we're, Right. And but I haven't even used that in a while. And then, I mean, there's a thing every day I get, you know, come eat here today or order out here today to support local business. And also 10 percent goes to whomever. So there's also a little bit of that. Right. I mean, the um, over overabundance of things going on. And, and uh, I mean, how do you how do you go? So I think that, it I really comes back to making it a personal story, like the one that you talked about at the top of the podcast that, you know, when somebody, you know, shares a story that's emotional and resonant, you're going to want to make a gift and you're going to want to do that regardless of whether you're going to receive some token gift in return or whether it's going to be in conjunction with going out to dinner somewhere, uh, you're going to want to do it just because it feels good and because it matters and because someone that you care about asked. And so I think helping our, helping our volunteers, um, maybe who are current donors or volunteers with our organization raise money in that way. So for example, on my Facebook recently, I had a friend who had this uh, Facebook fundraiser going and he took a picture with his dog. He frequently takes pictures with his pets and posts like a conversation that they're having. And he posted this picture of him with his dog and the conversation him and his dog were having were about the effects of cancer on someone close to them and sharing information about this um, upcoming fundraiser he was participating in and asking the network of friends that he had on Facebook if they would contribute to it. And I thought it was really brilliant because this just popped up in my feed. And until I started reading it, it just looked like it was going to be another fun conversation between my friend and his pet. And then suddenly it was this story that was meaningful. And of course, I wanted to click and make a donation. 
And so I think helping, you know, as nonprofit staff, helping people come up with creative things like that, that they can do so that it's not just this sort of boilerplate uh, Facebook template for I'm having a birthday and this is a cause that matters to me. Will you make a gift? That this is so much more specific than that and personal than that, that um, it stood out from everything else. So when, when people give donations online, though, are they typically smaller than, you know, like the, the, the somebody comes by my office and tries to give tries me to sign up for the next campaign? Um, you know, I mean, is that is that the case or or how, how it certainly does that can be uh, part of that might just be that we're less inclined to ask for as large of an amount. And so maybe we get what we ask for. But I do think that a lot of times something like a Facebook fundraiser, people are going to give a small token amount, right? It's my friend's birthday. I'll go ahead and throw 10 bucks, 20 bucks, whatever at that. Um, and it's very transactional, right? It's a nonprofit. I'm probably not going to get the names and contact information of most of the people who gave to that fundraiser. But if I have a volunteer who raises money for me and they get 10 or 20 bucks from enough of their friends, that's a pretty significant amount of money that they've raised. And so I want to treat them like that donor who writes a big check because they've managed to raise that money through their action and by tapping their network. But I do see that uh, once you have a relationship with somebody directly, maybe um, they're on your email list now and you've cultivated more of a relationship with them as a nonprofit, you can raise a pretty good amount through an email appeal. And so those social media fundraisers and social media relationships can be a way to build to a point where you know somebody well enough that they're on your email list and you can send them that great email that says, you know, here's the next story I want to share with you. And, you know, will you give a hundred dollars? Will you give $500. This is, you know, an important moment, an important cause that we have. And so I think at that point, you know, you've got to have the tools to segment your list and make the right ask to the right person the same way that you would with your direct mail appeals. And the technology is all there. But again, do you have staff who are comfortable with that technology and trained in that technology and have the time to devote to it? But that's, that's, I think, where, where we need to be headed. Of course, you know, just a reminder, I mean, small donations matter too, right? I mean, I, there's some months I, I get a thousand dollar credit card bill and I'm like, how did I, what did I spend a thousand dollars and ended up being $25 here at Amazon, mm -hmm. $12 here at Amazon, you know, $18 times whatever that number is. So they do add up, right? Of course, you have to have uh, a certain volume to have a certain amount of uh, uh, donations come in. Sarah, you mentioned um, direct mail a couple of times now, and it's interesting because we're talking about digital marketing and, and I'm mostly working in digital marketing, um, certainly, but I also think some of those traditional things, not also, I'll, that'll be my question for you, but um, I think those traditional channels, they still have a place. I mean, we had a, a, a direct mail expert on the show and he talked about um, how at certain times it still works. I mean, maybe not the two weeks before the election, because every campaign is sending you a flyer, you know, for to vote for them and why not to vote for the other person. Um, and then also the other thing is uh, Joe Polizzi, when he was on the show, he talked about um, brands creating magazines, you know, as a way to reach people, because it's so hard to actually stand out online, right? It's so easy to to just tune things out. People have app blockers. People mute, mute people on social. 
they unfollow them, you know, so now it's gone. The unsubscribe button is easier than ever. Um, so, so what's the right mix? Old, um, old strategies. I definitely and think that the the best way to go is to blend the two strategies. I think that um, even I'm a millennial, and I think even mm-hmm. younger folks who are in the millennial and Gen Z generation really like to get mail. It's exciting to get something in the mail. Uh, we might get less than previous generations do because we've grown up a bit more digital native. And so mail can be fun, especially if you're sending something that people are going to perceive as fun, interesting direct mail packages. And I think that direct mail can drive that online engagement as well, because if you're getting things in your mailbox, you've got this organization top of mind, you might pay more attention when you see them across your feed and you're just getting that multiple touch point from having engagement on both channels. And I think that you can use each to drive each other. So when you get new donors, new people on your email list through um, digital means, that's an opportunity to collect their mailing address and add them to your mailing list as well. And vice versa, we have uh, people on our mailing list right now where I work that we don't have an email address for and that we don't think that we have a social media connection with. And so in some of our mailings, we also try to drive the other direction. So we just put together a newsletter that's going out to everyone who's made a donation in the past couple of years to the organization that's going to provide them some updates. You know, we asked you if you would give money to help this student. Here's an update on where he is now. We, um, you know, asked you to support our, our nursing school. And here are some exciting new developments in the middle of the pandemic and how they're making a difference. So we have all of these update stories Uh, for our recent donors on what's been going on. But one of the pieces in that newsletter includes uh, a sort of challenge where we provide a recipe that uh, was part of a recent virtual event. And we ask those receiving the newsletter to try it out themselves and give them a specific hashtag that we'll be able to track on social media and ask them to post using that hashtag. So that mail piece is going to hopefully lead to some new digital engagement as well on social media. So I think the best strategy really is to just use each to drive each other so that you're able to have the most possible connection with the people that you're trying to reach. Well, I also certainly like to get mail. Uh, It's literally maybe the only thing that gets me out of the house, even though it's only 12 12 steps roughly. Uh, Thank you, COVID, for this crazy year. Um, have have we seen an increase, decrease in people um, donating? I mean, do we do we know? I mean, I, I I'm just thinking about all these businesses. You know, some businesses have had a really really rough year. Uh, I certainly noticed that when COVID first hit, I mean, everything just kind of grinded to a halt, right? I mean, conferences were canceled. Every, everything seemed to be like it was being canceled uh, in the same week, and certainly there's been some rebound, but. Uh, have we, and I, I guess actually the nonprofits here in the area, they, there has been some reports, I think, of declining donations. But have you seen so anything like that? So the last report that I saw, that which covered the first uh, two quarters of this year, so the first half of this calendar year, compared to the last calendar year, actually showed an overall increase in giving to nonprofits across the board in the United States. So giving is up. It's especially up for donors who are giving, I think it was $250, $250 and under. So it's those smaller level donations that are actually increasing the most uh, so far this year. 
Now, what I don't see in that report is a breakdown by mission type or by organization size. So I think that there's a lot of variability. I think that probably there are some nonprofits that are receiving a big influx in donations and others that are barely staying afloat. And so, you know, overall sector numbers are great as long as you're not that organization who's not represented well in that. I think that the nonprofits that have done the best have been the ones who've been able to quickly tell the story. COVID is happening. Here's how it is affecting us. And those stories could fall into the camp of here's what we're doing about it or here's what we're doing about the ancillary issues related to it, right? Maybe we're not actually trying to help find treatment for the the disease itself, but maybe we are doing something that helps with the economic fallout and impact on the community of uh, having to respond to a pandemic. And then there are others that just really focused maybe even on uh, here's how it's impacting us and our needs. So I think even if your mission has nothing to do with the pandemic itself, there's a way to tell the story of how it's impacting those that you serve and how a donation can make a difference. And I think some nonprofits were just really afraid to ask during the pandemic. When it first started, they felt like everybody's losing their jobs or you know, getting sick and, and they don't wanna think about making a donation to my cause that has nothing to do with that. And I think that that, that was a mistake. <laughs> the reality is that people still care about the things that they care about and that didn't go away just because of the pandemic. I think that for a lot of people giving during the pandemic, for those who do still have the means to do so, and obviously some people have been very deeply impacted uh, in terms of their finances, but there are also a lot of people who are still working and making money and possibly spending a lot less because things have had to shut down and take a break. So you're not taking your vacations and maybe not going out and doing as many social things that you would have spent money on. People have money to give and people want a way to deal with the emotional fallout that they're feeling uh, living through this moment and giving can be cathartic. And so making that ask is a way to provide an outlet for people to express those feelings and do something positive. And so I think it's really important for nonprofits who have paused asking to resume asking and give people that opportunity. We don't want to make that decision for our donors about what they can do or what they want to do. We want to let them make that decision. So we ask and they decide. I think that a lot of nonprofits did do a really great job of that. And that's why we've seen this influx in giving this year. I really like the comment earlier, Sarah, about uh, maybe people give smaller amounts online because we don't ask them to give bigger amounts. Mm -hmm. um, and it, that, that is very true. <laughs> you know, you can't be you can't be declined or denied if you don't ask um, or you also can't get the success. Right. When somebody asked me uh, when Seth Golden was on the show the other day, right. how did you get Seth yeah. Golden on the show? And I said, I asked him, <laughs> you know, and he said, yes. So that's uh, it's a very true statement. So of course, you know, like a nonprofit like United Way, I mean, theoretically, I know they got target audiences, but theoretically, anybody that lives in that market might have uh, interest in donating to them. But how about like in higher ed? So um, is it typically, are you typically uh, working with alumni or are there like, does anybody give to a, to a higher education organization? If it's very typical alumni? for How higher ed to focus look? predominantly on their alumni. Uh, and part of that comes in, first of all, obviously they have a connection. So we know that those are people who in theory care about the organization. 
part of it is also that mm-hmm. there is a component of the U.S. News and World Report ranking where uh, alumni participation in giving back to the institution has a role in what the organization's overall ranking is. It's a small part of that puzzle, but it is a part of that puzzle. And that's, of course, a very important metric uh, for organizational and uh, higher ed organizations to have a good ranking because that's going to drive their enrollment numbers and their overall success. Another big bucket that organizations typically look at in higher ed is parents of current students and parents of alumni. So my organization doesn't do a lot of that because Mm -hmm. we're a fairly young institution and we have a more non-traditional student population. And so that doesn't make the same amount of sense for us as it might for a traditional four-year institution, but that's certainly part of it. I do think that there are other groups that are worth reaching out to. And so for some higher ed institutions, sports fans, for example, might be great if you are one of those organizations who has a highly recognized sports team with lots of fans in the community. That might be a way to reach out to the broader community in a way that's meaningful to them, that maybe they don't even have college age students and they didn't attend your institution, but they go to your football games or whatever it is and uh, enjoy those and feel some sort of connection there. I also think that a lot of us could do a better job of talking more about our community impact. Uh, We do have some donors at our institution who give um, maybe to a scholarship fund that um, draws in folks from a particular segment of the community. And even though they themselves might not be a student, prospective student or parent of a prospective student, they might care about seeing their neighbors succeed. I think that, you know, there's, for us, we have um, a nursing school and uh, most of our graduates stay in this particular city. And so I think that for us, an untapped area that we could be reaching out into is fundraising within the broader community because we provide a lot of the nurses in our local workforce. And so that should matter to anyone who might ever find themselves in a hospital in our city. So it's just really a matter of where do you prioritize, what does your budget look like, and and who do you want to target. But there, I think, are a lot of opportunities for a lot of higher education institutions to think beyond those traditional alumni and parent populations. And then, of course, your faculty and staff is another one. Most of us do um, ask our own staff to give back to the institution through donations as well. It's always interesting to see the connections between different organizations in a community. Um, sometimes they're not as um, clear cut, I guess, as it could be, um, or as, as uh, transparent or obvious. Transparent might be too negative of a word here. Um, Sarah, how, how how important is it to have the right setup? I mean, certainly I could put a PayPal button on my website and say donate and have you know different um, different amounts or a drop down menu or whatever. Uh, but how, what's the right way? I mean, do, do you need like a full-fledged donation um, system or, or how do, how do. Yeah, there's actually some really interesting research. Um, and I can't think of the names of anybody off the top of my head who's been doing some really brilliant writing on this, but there certainly have been studies that can provide some evidence-based um, ideas to look at when you're creating your own forms as an organization. I think ideally you do want to keep it fairly simple because you don't want to overwhelm people with too many choices, but you want to reinforce the story you're telling if possible. So 
in a perfect world, what that looks like is having a separate donation form for each ask that you're making. So if you're sending out a direct mail letter and you're talking about Fred the Turtle, then you wanna have a donation form that's gonna reference Fred the Turtle on it when they click on it. Um, if you're sending out you know, a social media campaign and telling a different story, then you want those links to drive to a slightly different form that's gonna reinforce whatever story you were telling there. And that also helps you on your back end with your metrics if you're able to have these separate forms because then you'll know where those gifts were coming from, where they clicked through from. And I think, yeah, you want to have a few different choices, but not too many. And you want to try to collect the information that you're going to use. So you want your donor's name, email address, physical mailing address, things like birth dates. Maybe you want those, but you want to only ask if you're actually going to use it. You actually have a plan to use it and you want to make things optional unless you truly have to have them because you don't want your donor to spend too much time filling out information or to feel like you're asking for too much and have them cancel their donation because of that. You can always ask them for more information later as you start to build more of a relationship. So it's all about keeping it simple, but do make sure that you're capturing what you need. So if you have just a PayPal button, you run the risk of um, all you get is their PayPal user ID and you don't get any other information about them. So you do want to have something that's going to let you collect the basics so that you're able to say thank you for their gift and give them an update on what it's doing. Absolutely. And of course, the whole discussion about forms, uh, we did have Casey Cheshire on the show talking about how, how the sales team thought longer forms performed better, but only it was actually a misunderstanding um, <laughs> of what the sales team was looking at. So. Um, certainly make it simple for people to fill out the forms. Sarah, it was great to have you on the show. Where My can uh, Twitter handle you, is Sarah Nicole 838. That's S-A-R-A-H-N-I-C-O-L-E 838. I am on LinkedIn. You can just search my name, Sarah Willey, S-A-R-A-H-W-I-L-L-E-Y. And I do have a website. It's sarahwillyllc.com. So S-A-R-A-H-W-I-L-L-E-Y-L-L-C.com. Fantastic. And of course, we'll put that link in, in the show notes as well. Um, on tomorrow's episode 246, we'll have Kathy Klutz guest. She's talking about the power of improv in business. Very interesting episode. And we, you know, it doesn't hurt any of us to have some of those skills handy, or 